This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Morena no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo Irarangi Onatangata. O Manawatu, Happy New Year to you all. Uh, yes, I know it's Tuesday and the catch up should have started yesterday. We did say before the break we'll be, be-, be- beginning the week of Monday, the 10th of January. Uh, and we are kicking off today on Tuesday, the 11th, close enough, with Chairperson for Horizons Regional Council, uh, Rachel Keedwell. Good morning to you and Happy New Year. Good morning and Happy New Year to you. You too. Um, local body politics, uh, my understanding, certainly from a city council perspective, is July is a very quiet month. But I'm assuming the sort of the, the sort of late December, January period can be a bit chill as well. Yeah, yeah. It differs from council to council, but we generally finish in mid-December and uh, January is pretty much a month off for councillors. Mm-hmm. Uh, our formal council meetings don't resume until February. In July, also, we don't have formal council meetings. So um, it's it's a pretty cushy job. Well, I was about to say, say, it's um, also election year this year for Mm. local body, and it's something that people should start thinking about because if they're interested in making a difference and working for their community, it is paid well enough for it to be your primary income. It didn't used to be, Mm -hmm. so therefore it was always the terrain of the, you know, independently wealthy or self-employed or retired. Um, it does pay well enough to be a job. Now, on that note, um, the, the councils are given a pot of money uh, by government to pay councillors. That it doesn't change whether you have four councillors or 40. Um, so, and a lot of councils, when looking at the Māori wards and the increase in number of councillors, thus potentially uh, lowering the amount of money councillors get. We're looking at the number of councillors uh, that make up um, the the organisation. Did Horizons remind us, did you decide to lower the number of councillors or is is everything sort of the status quo? No, so we've increased. Because of the complexities of trying to get fair representation across our region, when we decided to add in two Māori wards, uh, the easiest way in the end was to add them on top of the existing 12. So mm. we'll move from 12 to 14 councillors, but that doesn't mean extra money for ratepayers. No. It, it does mean that it just gets split more ways. But it, you, you st- it's still a, a living wage? Yes, most definitely. Because uh, it's, it's also not a full-time job, so mm-hmm. you can do other work as well if you choose to. So I mean, I let, let's uh, you know, encourage people to consider standing for local body politics. I mean, what is the workload? What, what, how many hours mm. a week do, would people expect to put in? Notwithstanding that I'm, I'm assuming you'll be running again, want to be chairperson again, that role is off the table. <laughs> well, I hope so. I, I feel like my work's not done yet. Yeah. So um, I, I do intend to stand again and, and, and be chair for another term if that's uh, what my colleagues Want want to happen happen, um, yeah. It it really varies depending on how much effort you put into it. I remember one of the first term councillors alongside me when I first got on. He got a real shock because the person he'd talked to told him, "Oh, it was just two or three meetings a week." Um, you know, maybe 
10 hours a month type of <laughs> type of response. No, in fairness, and it's not that. I no, think. it certainly isn't. So we don't always have meetings every week, but we do. I, I did keep track of the hours when I first um, came on board, and it was it was definitely not full-time, but it was more than half-time. Mm-hmm. When you take into account all of the reading that needs to be done, so you've got a meeting, which might be six hours, but there's several hours of, of reading on top of that. Mm. And um, some of my councillors are really active in the community, so they attend all of the community oh, meetings. I, I was going to say, that's a thing, isn't it? it, it it's as, as, as much work as you are willing right. to put into it. It yeah. could be more than a full-time job. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so it's how you choose to treat it. And it doesn't mean that you have to attend all of the community meetings in order to be a valuable um, counsellor, mm-hmm. as long as I think you're informed and you're making a decision that reflects the community values that you think you're representing there, um, I think that's just as valuable as well. And the, the, you know, there are some counsellors who represent areas a significant distance away from from your offices in Palmerston North and the mm-hmm. chambers in Palmerston North. Uh, digital options are pretty robust and, and accepted formally, where before they were not mm-hmm. in all cases. You know, Palmerston North. North, for example, when the first lockdown happened, the, the ability to attend meetings digitally was not sort of legislated for. It wasn't allowed. You had to be in person or you couldn't vote type situation. Yeah, yeah. And we were subject to that as well. Like we already had the facilities in place because of the distance. Mm-hmm. It was it made sense for the person in Rupi who, if we only had a two hour meeting, that they attended over Zoom rather than driving three hours each way. Mm. But uh, what the difference was is they could vote, but they couldn't form part of the quorum, and uh, that was so. So some of those rules were changed under the emergency legislation yep. to allow all the meetings to be offline and be just as effective as if it was in person. So, it's, I mean, it's a pretty flexible environment now, and and mm-hmm. you know, being being able to work from home and that sort of thing. Um, well, what was the process of standing for election? I mean, mm. that that would be a sort of not impenetrable, but certainly a sort of daunting prospect for some. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I really encourage people to reach out to councillors. Like, I'm very happy to talk people through what they need to do. But essentially, you need to be nominated and you pay a deposit. I can't remember how much it is. It's like 100 bucks or something. Mm. But you get back if you're successful, like in the top something percent. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, but it's not cost isn't a huge barrier. In, in fairness, Rachel had no idea we were going to be talking about this this morning, and she's still on holiday <laughs> mode. So uh, you know, a bit of empathy there. Yeah, but um, that, that's the official part, and then there's like the campaign, and then people vote. Mm. So really, it's how you choose to campaign. I know when I stood, I found some really useful um, seminars I went to with existing or previous councillors who gave advice on what works. I mean, so much of it is about name recognition. So it's how do you do that? And you can do that without spending a lot of money as well, particularly in the age of social media, if Mm. you're effective at how you work. I've always thought, and this is unfair, but... um Palmerston North City Council seems to be the one where the campaigning means the most in terms of getting uh, yourself elected, particularly if you're a new face. Uh, Manawatu District Council, some of the urban wards were were heavily contested, but the rural ones maybe not so much. It struck me that uh, if you just put your name in the ballot for Mid-Central BHB or Horizons, you were in with a good shot because most people just didn't really pay much attention to those ones. It's unfair, but that seems to be the way of it, doesn't it? Yeah. I think the city, there's always been higher competition. Like There's always more people putting their name forward for Horizons than there are seats available. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but so last election, two of our councillors were elected, re-elected unopposed. Mm-hmm. So the Wanganui constituency, no one put their name in. So you know, if it's like that, you've got to. It's worth it taking a shot if you've if you've yeah if you've got a high profile. And some people choose to do it in a, over a series of years, like do it the first time round, knowing they're not going to get in because you know they're not known or, mm. or whatever. They don't have the finances to do a massive campaign that might blitz everyone. But by being active in that election and then remaining active through the intervening three years, the second time round is often where people do get on. Yeah. And, of course, Māori Ward's coming in this mm. year. Um, well, the Māori Ward, which, I mean, the the horizons, Rohe, is huge. Yeah. Um, that's going to be a big ask for one, two? So we've got two, two and it's split over the region. Yeah. But still a big area to cover. And those those seats are open. Like, there's no one in those. Yeah. And I really encourage people to stand for those. Has there been a lot of interest? Have you heard any sort of rumblings? Not yet, but I've talked with our comms team about putting together a, uh, a little video that we can start sharing with the different iwi organisations to share among their people mm-hmm. because... You know, it really, if they can get some good people standing and get some great representation, it can make a real difference. Is this going to make things difficult? And I don't want to put you on the spot, and I'm not suggesting you should speak on his behalf, but Wiramuti Awe Awe uh, was elected. He is uh, very much uh, this, the Māori voice around the table at the moment, but he's on that general role ticket. Um, do you think there'll be pressure for him to move to a Māori seat or will he, do you think he would stick with the, the general role so that, you know you can have three Māori voices around the table? Yeah, we potentially could but um, and that's a decision he has to make yeah, as yeah. to whether he thinks he'll get on in one or the other. There might be strengths and weaknesses to each approach but I also think he's not the only, you know, he's, he's the, um, you know, the visible Māori presence around the table but we have members like Nicola Patrick who's worked for an iwi uh, organisation mm. before and she's often the strongest voice around the table for iwi interests mm-hmm. which has been uh, quite fascinating to watch those dynamics at play. So it does mean that you don't get um, put into a box necessarily, you can represent a wide range of interests around the table. And and as you should, I mean, that's the oath, isn't it? And, and mm-hmm. again, I, I draw on my Palmerston North City Council experience because, you know, I'm near that. Um, but people might be uh, nominated uh, for a particular ward or interest or, or demographic uh, community of interest. But once you're in there, you have to represent everyone yep. e- evenly across the board. That's yep. And that's some, something we do have to remind councillors of particularly in Horizons where it's such a big area mm-hmm. and people can be quite fixated on their patch and what they're trying to stand for. But yes, the oath does say they represent everyone. Uh, so yes, it is election year. Thank you for reminding us because that means we have to cover all the elections. Um, but uh, yes, if you are interested in standing for any council, uh, do get in touch. They'll have all the information uh, there and uh, I think elections. GOVT.NZ will have uh, information as well. Um, let's move away from elections. Those are later in the year. Let's not dwell on those too much. Um, let's talk about some of the environmental matters. Although I, I guess uh, to, to start off with, we acknowledge that you know Horizons uh, manages uh, monitors the water control. Now, a lot of our swim spots are, are across the the region, and sadly, the swimming spots making news for well, all, all the wrong reasons. Uh, up to mm. four deaths. Uh, in Manawatu swim spots, well, in one actually at the same the same spot, which I had not recognised as a particularly dangerous area up to now. No, and yeah, firstly, I just want to acknowledge mm. those people who did die and their families. Um, yeah, it's 
it's a terrible time of year to lose anyone and uh, a lot of people affected when you've got four people in, in just our Palmerston North community. Mm. Um, and that swim spot, I mean, it's very close to my heart. I consider that part of my backyard. It's five minutes walk from my back gate and I was swimming there the day before the first two people died. I spent the um, Christmas and Boxing Day teaching my nieces and nephews how to swim safely mm. in that river, crossing the river and how to jump off the low cliffs on the other side. Um, yeah, really, really traumatic to then hear that people died in that swimming hole. This is just at the bottom of Maxwell's Lane, isn't it? That's yeah. right, yeah. And really popular, um, really popular. I, I Not so much this year because the swim, you know, the, the swimmable weather has only just started, mm. but in previous years I've counted upwards of 250 people there on any given day wow. enjoying our river. Um, which, I mean, that, that surprises me because I... I whether I've been I've misheard or I've been misinformed, but I always thought the Manawatu River was not particularly swimmable at any time because of things like you know, Palmerston or City runoff and everything else and, and the, mm. the agriculture and dairy industry. Yeah, so it's not straightforward. You can't just assume you can swim in the river. And we've got signs up at each of our swimming spots saying, I think the, the little jingo thing is um, swim here when the water's clear mm-hmm. because that's a really key guidance. When there's been rainfall, that's when you get all of the runoff, you get the high bacteria levels, which is what makes it unsafe for swimming from a health perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, me personally, when I go to swim down there because I'm walking by the river every day, I've got a good feel for, you know, it's swimming season or it's not. But when there's been rain recently, I don't just look at the Lawa site, which is the one where we put up our weekly bacteria counts mm-hmm. because they can, there's a lag to that. So mm-hmm. they test it, I think at the moment in that spot, they're testing on a Tuesday. The result's not lodged till a Thursday. So if you're wanting to swim on a Monday, the the results are already a week old. Yeah. But Horizons has... Um, you know, up to the minute uh, river flow information, and there's a very strong corresponding relationship between river flow and bacteria levels. So I look at that as well in assessing uh, whether it's it's suitable for swimming. And uh, and then the other factor, of course, you know, I said it's not straightforward. Is if it's been really hot, dry weather for a long time, you can get the toxic algae mm-hmm. growing on the rocks, which is not suitable for swimming in. So that's uh, you know that's only under certain conditions, rather than just after rainfall or, or I, throughout the season. I mean, it, it, it's all well and good for you and I to talk about, and I've talked to you and and other councillors and other people about this regularly enough that I kind kind of understand that stuff, and and you obviously understand it, but not to, to be patronising or detrimental to people's reputations or intelligence. Not everyone understands the nuances of this. There will be a large swathe of people in this region that are swimming in water that is not safe on the regular basis. Absolutely, absolutely. And we saw that um, the first two deaths, that was in conditions that people shouldn't have been swimming there. Um, The river was up, it was brown, um, which, and I think that was a contributing factor to why the, the girl uh, was swept away because mm. the current was higher and you couldn't see where it was safe. Um, yeah, it's a really difficult one to work with and I think that comes down to education. So one of the things we, we want to do, and I, I was speaking to the Mayor Grant Smith yesterday about this, as to what we can do from our council perspectives because it's not the same as a swimming pool. You know, a swimming pool, you've got control over all of the factors. You can have lifeguards there. You know, it's very tightly managed. A river's a dynamic system, mm. so it changes all of the time and people have suggested to me we should have lifeguards there. 
well, it wouldn't have stopped those first two deaths because why would you have lifeguards on duty when it's a day that you shouldn't be swimming? Mm. You know, so but how do that, we get well, that message through? That, that's a good point, though. If there is no lifeguard there, then you wouldn't – it's like the beach. You know, you swim between the flags. If the flags aren't there, you don't go swimming. Obviously, there's a reason the flags aren't there. So there mm. is – I suppose there would be. Uh, Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's an education thing. So if people are aware – no lifeguard presence or signs up or whatever, it, then they know it's safe to swim or it's not safe to swim. Mm. Um, I, I do, I've been talking with a lot of people about this and reflecting on the changes. I mean, I don't know when you came to New Zealand, but as a child growing up in New Zealand, we all had to learn to swim. It was compulsory mm. in the school pools. Every school had a pool. Or if you didn't, you were bussed to somewhere that did. Um, I remember there was so much more advertising about water safety. Like there was there were things... I still remember this, the ad, look before you leap, mm-hmm. teaching you about jumping into rivers and what to look for and safety. And, and I don't see that education no. to the same extent anymore. And so people think, they see the river, they see people swimming, they just assume it's safe and don't know their own capabilities and don't know the river's capabilities, more importantly. Um, I mean, when, when those people did die, the second lot, the river was still flowing quite swiftly mm-hmm. because of all the rain we've had. It hasn't dropped as quickly as it usually would. And I was very aware of that when I was teaching my nephew to swim across, just making sure I took one kid at a time because it was strong and they had to swim strongly to get, yeah. to get free of that current. Uh, we've gone about 15 minutes without mentioning the pandemic, but I, I promise you it's related. Um, with this uh, current traffic light system and, and uh, a significant portion of our population choosing not to get vaccinated, this means that uh, they can't access swimming pools for the most part. Uh, I'm pretty sure they can't access Makino. And even if you are vaccinated, you've got to like book your time. and everything. So It takes the spontaneity and the fun out of what should be a nice family activity. People are flocking to the rivers now that otherwise would never have done. And they have even less information around how to swim safely mm-hmm. in these ever cha- this is the thing i take the kids up to up the pahongana valley totara reserve go swimming there it changes every day it's never the same place twice which is fun and new and interesting but potentially dangerous you don't know where you mm-hmm. know the current's going to be stronger or weaker or where it's going to get deeper or shallower it's it yeah there's a lot more people going to be in this position now yeah, and I have had people contact me with that as a concern and, and asking, did the council consider that in their risk assessment of making uh, the polls <coughs> excuse me, not available to people without a vaccine pass? Um, you know, I, I've had a, a woman contact me who say her child who has uh, just about drowned in the past and now she's very rigorous about her swimming lessons, she can't get vaccinated so she can't take her son to swimming lessons and, you know, it's there's concern out there. And so mm. I, I don't know. I don't know how much of that is impacting on um, people's decision-making. But, again, it points to if we're going to encourage people to swim in the river, which we do because we have our swim spot monitoring, the city council talks about it as a beach, mm-hmm. is there more we can do or should there be more that we do to make it safer from an educational perspective? I don't think there's much we can do from a physical perspective. Someone was suggesting to me to go, Get bulldozers, horizon should be digging out the logs and the dangerous logs that trap people. But 
that's never been an issue in this particular swimming hole. No. Um, we are here with Chairperson uh, Rachel Keedwell from Horizons Regional Council, uh, having a, a look at, uh, in particular, the, the swim spots and the, the summer science programmes that uh, go along with monitoring uh, our safe swimming areas in uh, the Horizons Rohe. Uh, if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the Catch Up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch up. Um, I mentioned the summer science programs there, but just uh, the the Lawa site is, uh, well, it's Land, Air, Water, Aotearoa, right. um, and Horizons contributes data to that site so that people can see the swim spots and various other uh, environmental and factors and the nature factors so that they can uh, choose their outdoor recreation wisely. Um, but you said there is a bit of a lag to that, but there's there's other stuff that Horizons are monitoring and, and this is part of the, I guess, just increasing awareness and education around what Horizons is actually doing in this space. Mm, yeah, so our swim spot one is the one we advertise through summer to make people aware of it so they can use it in making wise choices as mm-hmm. to where they swim and when. But uh, the monitoring network is more extensive than that. That's 80 sites, um, and I don't have the figures to hand, but we do have uh, many more sites that are monitoring the water quality in terms of um, the nutrients that are in there, so Mm -hmm. the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the clarity, the bugs, uh, a whole range of things. And you you don't really think of a regional council as doing science, but we've got a very large science team because there's so much... Uh, knowledge we need to be able to make the decisions as to how to wisely manage our resources. Mm. Well, I mean, climate change, uh, environmental impact and sustainability, they all come from a science point, you know, the knowledge that (laughs) humans are doing bad things and we need to change them. Um, So it's it's not surprising that you would be interested in that, but I guess it would be surprising to some people just the, the size of the team and the amount of work you are doing in that space and leading in that space as opposed mm. to just accepting data from outside sources and making decisions. You're, you're getting it from in-house, which must be quite pricey because these will be uh, professional roles. Yeah, yeah. I don't have the figures to hand as to what that uh, what that the budget is, but uh, it, it is a large, you know, you're talking millions of dollars mm-hmm. invested into these networks. Um, just the tech alone and some of them with the flow recording and, and uh you know, some places we're having to use helicopters to take samples in the fresh, freshwater lakes. and uh, But all of that's really important in providing the information for things like uh, the, you know, with the essential freshwater from government where we've got to rewrite our plans, the freshwater part of our plans. How do you write the allocation frameworks and the, um, you know, the nutrient budgets or how are you you're going to address the nutrient issues if you don't know what's in the river at the mm-hmm. moment? and don't have a good understanding of the trends through time. So that's why it's really important to have as much information as possible. And in some places, uh, you know, there's gaps in our network because we've got thousands of kilometres of river. Yes. Um, But we've been working with a lot of catchment groups, so particularly farmer-led catchment groups, where they have uh, some reasonably simple technology that's cost-effective that they can do sampling in their own stretch of the river. 
and then they can link that to their own practices as well. You know, it's really rewarding for them to to notice the changes mm. in, in line with the practices when they're making changes themselves. It's kind of neat to hear you saying that Horizons works with uh, the, the the farming community. I'm sure there are exceptions, but you know, people have the stereotypical view of a farmer: get off my land, I'll do things the way I've done it for 50 years, and everyone can just leave me alone. But actually, you know, farming is 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 well, has been for a while, uh, a very modern, you need to be very tech savvy, you need to come up with innovation and protecting the environment, as it turns out, is better than obliterating it. Mm. And it's so much easier to work with people from an education perspective rather than an enforcement one. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of the scale we'd rather be at. Mm-hmm. And we do have uh, you know, roles, rural advisors that go out there and help in this, you know, help farmers understand what they need to do to comply with the rules and the regulations. Um, because it is, it's much better to get them to do it right mm-hmm. and be proactive than for us have to get a bigger team to run around with the big stick mm-hmm. to, to um, fix up the mess afterwards. Well, the the, the big stick did. Re- I mean, uh, this is this is quite. This leads into um, Palmer's North City Council uh, gearing up for their new uh, nature calls pro- uh, project. Uh, the big stick was was raised and then lowered, and then raised and then lowered over the years. Uh, Janine Rankin has written uh, a. a, fi- a Decent uh, summary of the history of Horizons and, and the City Council uh, with regards to the City Council's wastewater project. Uh, obviously, Chris Teoshirel gets a mention for sort of uh, opening the box in the first place and letting all the things run about. Um, but basically, in summary, $496 million, which I think it's safe to say Palmerston North City ratepayers will not be footing the bill for all of that. There's got to be some help from somewhere else. Um, but this is going to take all of our wastewater, uh, including industrial wastewater, which I found interesting, uh, and converting it into a clear liquid, just one reverse osmosis step away from clean drinking water, which, if memory serves, not everyone around that council table was happy with. It was, you know, if, if we're going to be best case, if we're going to do everything properly, we should go the whole hog. Uh, I'm assuming this meets all of Horizon's criteria, though. Well, I guess we'll find out, won't we? Because they have to submit their resource consent. Mm-hmm. And- Which is July, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's uh, June, sorry. June, mm-hmm. uh, the, the deadline is looming. Because uh, it also, I mean, the, the big thing around the resource consent is it also includes uh, discharging to land across 760 hectares, mm-hmm. which I don't know how big a hectare is. I know it's very big and 760 of them would be, you know, huge. Um, wait, wait, where is there a spare 760 hectares that we can discharge to? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because it's, <laughs> it's not spare. No. So it's where do we take it from? Where are they taking it from? I'm, I, you know, because we have a regulatory role in this, I've just been, you know, watching from afar mm. and certainly not involved in any capacity. Um, it, as, a, as a city council, as a city rate payer, though, are you happy with the nature calls? Like, to be clear, we're separating Rachel Keedwell, chairperson of Horizons, mm-hmm. and as a rate, environmentally conscious rate payer, are you happy with the city council plans? Or would you prefer not yeah, to say? I, I probably prefer not to say, but I think um, I'm happy that we are looking at doing a better job mm-hmm. than what's currently there. Um, you know, the ideal would be to get it up to drinking water standard without having to take a whole lot of food producing land out Mm -hmm. and without having to put anything into the river. But there's the ideal and then there's the practical realities of what we're, the systems that we're working with. I'm assuming reverse osmosis is incredibly expensive, which is why they're not doing it. That's the problem. You're talking, you know, a billion dollar budget rather than millions of dollars. Right. Well, that that makes sense. So, you know, the rate payers are 
there's only so much people can actually front up with for this. Yes. Um, just talking uh, before we went to air, uh, I asked you if Horizons works with CEDA much um, and through Accelerate 25 predominantly, I say 25, we're in 22 now. <laughs> you might have to update the name of that little organisation. Um, but uh, worth acknowledging uh, there's a new leadership team for 2022 in CEDA. Uh, Jerry Shearman is the new CEO and a familiar name to many, Bobby O'Fee is the new chip person. That's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's probably a relationship that we can work uh, more closely with. Um, the Accelerate 25 is, is like the economic development arm of the region where we're pulling together all of the councils. And within that, we have CEDA, which is the Palms North Manawatu area, but there's Wanganui and Partners over in Wanganui. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, so there are various other organisations across the region. And uh, that's something we probably uh, don't do well enough as yet, is making sure we're really well coordinated and we're, we're not doubling up on the ground. So it, um, I do meet regularly, I have up till now meet regularly with uh, members from CEDA to talk exactly about that, to make sure that we are clear as to mm-hmm. the communications open as to what's going on. So yeah, I look forward to meeting the new members and uh, continuing those conversations. Marvellous. Chairperson Rachel Keedwell from Horizons Regional Council, thank you for joining us on the catch-up this morning. Most welcome. Uh, And of course, a happy new year to you as well. We'll be back tomorrow uh, with the uh, Manawatu Standard Slot. We're actually going to be speaking to John Ogalushka. He did an article on 10 years as a court reporter uh, for the Manawatu Standard. Looking forward to finding out more about that. That'll be half past eight tomorrow. Join us then. Bye for now. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the KiwiFruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.